Good evening, Sovereign Grace, and any of those here tonight that are visiting. Um, it's a blessing and a privilege to gather once again on this Lord's Day to fellowship around the singing of God's Word and the exalting of Christ as we do that, and especially as we open up His Word. So as we open up God's Word, would you please join me in turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2, just verses 1 and 2. This wraps up the section that began largely in chapter 5 and verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. I'll remind you, brothers and sisters, as we read these scriptures, that this is God's word to us, holy and inerrant. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessing that it is, the privilege that it is to gather together in your name, to fellowship in song, to fellowship in prayer, and fellowship in the reading and receiving of your word. We pray that as we do so, that your spirit would be at work to open our eyes, to open our ears, to see the glory of your word. God, that we would be edified and built up and encouraged. God, that we would be convicted and challenged. And more than anything, that we would be drawn closer and closer to an appreciation of Christ, his person, and his work. Father, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, imagine for a moment, those of us who are here right now, it's 2023, but imagine we were gathered together for an evening service on the Lord's Day in the first century. There would be many aspects of our gathering together that would be very similar to what we're doing now, gathering together to hear the word, to hear the apostles' doctrine, gathered together to receive communion, the breaking of bread, praying together. There would be many elements that would be similar. There would be some elements and aspects that would be different. We consider the fact that while both would likely be singing corporate worship, we'd be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but we recognize that the instruments that accompanied that music may have been not quite the same as the instruments that accompany our music even today. But there will be many elements, though, are different that are also similar. The people that you're sitting next to would be a mixed community of people. People made up of family members, brothers and sisters, friends, parents, husbands, wives, maybe grandparents, and aunts and uncles or neighbors. There would be a, a numbering relationships that would be reflected here that would also be reflected there. One of the relationships that would not be so reflected here 
that would have been present in the first century would be that of a slave sitting next to or near his master in a corporate worship setting. What would be odd for us to experience is standing in a room and potentially receiving the Lord's Supper, breaking bread with your master or with your servant or being a part of a church where perhaps your own servant is an elder in your church or your own master is an elder in your church. And especially an elder being a church member where one of their own servants has spiritual authority over them as an elder would have been quite bizarre and potentially may have caused some relational tension. When we approach a text like this in 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, and the many other texts in the New Testament where the relationship between slaves and masters is presented, I think there's three primary tendencies to respond to with a text like this. One, there's no relevance. So perhaps we just kind of move on to the next passage that does seem to have more application and relevance to our lives in 2023 in the modern day. The second tendency might be to spend time critiquing. Critiquing Paul for maybe not saying enough against slavery in the first century and spending time focused on social reform and how we can see parallels of the treatment of people in different socioeconomic classes then and now and and what can we do to change that. That might be one tendency to respond with in a passage like this. A third tendency, which is quite common, is to make quick contextualization. Jump really, really quickly to application. So, for example, the parallel for the relationship between slaves and masters in the first century is just like the relationship between employers and employees in our day and age. And to make a really, really quick jump to the application without focusing in on the immediate context of the passage. Now, I'm not saying that any form of contextualization or application between these relationships that we see with slaves and masters and employers and employees is not appropriate on any level. I think there is a place for that. But there are principles wider in scope that need to be considered and that we will consider with our time in this text. The big idea of sovereign grace is that honoring God will reflect itself in honoring those in positional authority over us. Honoring those in positional authority over us honors God and it serves as a means to gospel witness and expressing brotherly love. When we serve, when we honor those in positions of higher authority than us, it is a means by which the gospel is magnified, that we give testimony and witness to the gospel, and it is a means by which we love and serve one another. Up to this point in this section, starting largely in chapter 5, 
Paul has been providing instructions to Timothy. Instructions regarding the many social and relational aspects of the church. In other words, Paul has been providing instruction for Timothy regarding the various social dynamics and the responsibilities within them. So, for example, the relationship between older men and younger men, the relationship between older women and younger women, as well as widows and elders, and how we're to treat one another and and how we're to care for one another in the context of the local church. And now, at the end of this section, the beginning of chapter 6, Paul turns to the relational responsibilities that exist between slaves and masters. And especially here, the obligations of a Christian slave to his master. And as Paul writes regarding a slave's obligation, continued obligation, we'll see what these obligations look like in the context and service of two different kinds of masters. There's two different kinds of masters that Paul speaks to, that Christian slaves have an obligation to serving. In verse 1, or really the first part, we'll focus primarily on a Christian slave's obligation to service. And just generally speaking, in the first century, what is that obligation that the slave has? And in the second part of verse 1, we'll consider the Christian slave's service to unbelieving masters. And then in verse 2, the Christian slave's service to believing masters. And what is the similarity, but what is the difference between his obligation to these two different kinds of masters? So looking at the first part of verse 1 again, let's just consider the slave's obligation to service in general He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. He is speaking to those who are within the church, who are professing Christians, and these professing Christians happen to be slaves. They are still living in a society where the society and the economy is largely based upon Slavery And many of these Christians who are in this church are slaves themselves. So here's the reality of the situation. Slavery was prominent in the first century. It's estimated that there were 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And as many as one-third of the population in cities like Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus, which is the church that Paul is writing to Timothy that Timothy is presiding over. Slavery in the first century played a prominent role in the first century that transcended domestic service. That's another important note. But these weren't just slaves who were contributing to household duties and laboring in the field, though that was a part of a task that a slave may have had in the first century. But slaves also labored as clerks, as craftsmen, as teachers, as soldiers, as managers, and even some governors, depending on who their master was. 
and the sphere of authority that that master had. So again, slaves played a prominent role, and it transcended mere domestic services and farm labor. Slavery played a prominent role in the first century. That's the reality. The tension that we all recognize is that slavery is bad. Slavery is wrong, and yet the apostles do not outright demand its immediate abolishment in these texts. They don't. So it's important to add a couple more notes. That slavery in the first century was of a different kind. It was not racially motivated. It was economically motivated. Now, this doesn't lighten the seriousness or the wrongness of slavery. The buying and selling of human beings for one's economic well-being is sub-Christian. We recognize that. And even as we consider the ways in which some of these people came under slavery, in many ways, was awful. So slavery, we recognize, is bad, and yet the apostles, in a text even like this, don't spend time giving instructions for how Timothy is to abolish the practice of slavery. He spends time talking about the ways in which slaves ought to function and serve their masters. Again, slavery played a prominent role in the first century. Their society and their economy was largely based around this practice. So an immediate dismantling of slave practices would have caused societal collapse, leaving many Christians without the basic necessities of life. Many of them who were under the service of masters actually were receiving Food, shelter, means of actual producing life and its basic necessities. So, in a, and again, if one third, one third of the population in Ephesus were enslaved, and many of the members in this church were enslaved, you would have many church members out on the street if there was an immediate dismantling and push. And on top of that, if there was an immediate revolt against slavery by the hands of Christians, it would have had brutal consequences. Brutal consequences. Leaving many Christians' lives at risk of death. And maybe not just at risk of death, but actual death. When revolts happened, when slave uprisings took place, the response to that was not just kind of welcomed they're just speaking their minds. Let's just hear them out. Let's just welcome their pro. It was responded with brutality. It was responded with force. So again, the apostles recognize this. And the apostles also recognize something else that's really, really important. They recognize that their calling to suffer was for the sake of the gospel. And the continuing to spread of the gospel and the building up of Christ's church rather than social reform. That was not their emphasis. All the while, entrusting, entrusting their gospel labors to ultimately bring about 
transformation, which it did and has continued to. We've seen that. We are, if you will, one result of that, a society like ours. So again, in light of all of this, it's important to note where the apostles are placing their emphasis in light of the varying aspects of the context that they're living in. Paul and the apostles place emphasis on how Christian slaves and masters are to relate with one another. That's where the emphasis seems to be. This doesn't mean that Paul never addresses Christian slaves in their treatment of slaves. There are other places, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to jump to those, but just for in your notes, if you want to look up later, Colossians 4.1, Paul writes specifically to masters, challenging them and encouraging them to treat their servants or their slaves justly and fairly as the Lord has treated them, so you are to treat them. The same thing in Ephesians 6. In the case of Philemon, if you're familiar with Philemon, Paul is writing to Philemon, and in Philemon, he addresses Onimus, who was a slave of Philemon's, who likely is someone that stole something from Philemon and then ran away. He was a runaway slave. And he came in contact with Paul, heard the gospel, got saved, and he writes to Philemon saying, when Onimus comes back, I'm sending him back to you, receive him like a brother. Don't treat him harshly. Paul also encourages slaves to pursue their freedom and refrain from enslavement. I'll jump to a quick passage in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, he says this, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called in terms of his calling unto Christ and in his salvation. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So if you are a free person, don't enter into a yoke of slavery again under men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So for those remaining in slavery, those who are called to Christ as slaves, and those who continue to be slaves in Christ, Christian slaves, he writes to them. Or he writes to Timothy, providing instructions for them. How are these slaves to carry themselves? How are these slaves to serve? So picking back up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It's imperative. It's imperative for those that are Christian slaves. They are to consider their masters worthy of reverence. For one, there's a general respect that they are to be given by nature of the fact that they are human beings, regardless of the fact that they are unbelievers. 
that they're human beings made in the image and likeness of God, and there is a level of reverence and honor that, that you ought to give. But more than that, there is a special dignity, a special reverence, or a special regard that they are to be given due to the fact that they are in positional authority over these slaves. They were saved and called to Christ under slavery, and they still remain under this yoke. They still have an obligation to serve. And even if they're unbelievers, they are still obligated to serve. A slave's freedom in Christ is not freedom from that authority. A slave's freedom in Christ is not freedom to slothfulness or providing lesser quality of service. No, no, Paul is saying, Timothy, you would instruct these slaves that just because they're free in Christ, just because they've been called to him, that they're no longer slaves to this world, that they're justified in Christ, that they're called to his family that they're children of grace. That is not freedom from their earthly responsibilities that they may have as a Christian slave. And it's most definitely not an excuse to be lazy, to be slothful. He says, you are to regard these masters as worthy of all honor. And that ought to demonstrate itself in the way that you serve them, regardless of the fact that you're a Christian and they are not. And he provides the reason in the second part, in the last part of the verse, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, so that the name of God and the doctrine may not be reviled. Christian slaves are to serve with all reverence, their earthly masters, to the end that God and his doctrine would be magnified rather than maligned, rather than dismissed, rather than demeaned. A lack of honor and slothfulness and service will lead to the reproach of God and his word among unbelieving masters. That's the point, that when you are slothful, when you give a lesser quality of service, when you use your freedom in Christ as an excuse to not give them reverence, you are demeaning, you are disrespecting, you are dishonoring the name you bear in Christ. And you are bringing reproach against the doctrine, the faith, the teaching to which you have been called by. Paul is saying that a lack of honor and slothfulness in service will lead to the reproach of God and his word, but giving honor in attitude and giving honor in work will result in the magnifying of God's name and the doctrines of the faith. It will lead to the magnifying, the exaltation, the adorning. This is Paul's point. You can turn to Titus if you want. It's just two books over, two letters over. Titus chapter 2, where Paul again is addressing the relationship between slaves and masters. And there his exhortation or his instruction is just a little bit different. But I want to draw your attention to a point that's being made. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 
bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is writing Timothy to instruct his slaves, brothers, I understand you are under this yoke, but you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of the faith. You have an opportunity to adorn the gospel, to bear witness to the gospel through the way that you serve your masters. And he warns them of the consequences of what happens when they don't. And again, this is in the context specifically of serving unbelieving masters. And why do we know that? Well, partly because verse 2 introduces a second kind or a second group of masters that a servant might be under the yoke of. So let's look at the service to a believing master. Verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. On the ground, that literally there's a parallel between the beginning of these two clauses, on the ground that those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So your freedom in Christ and the fact that you are brothers in Christ is not grounds to provide lesser service to them, to be lackadaisical, to pull back on your responsibilities, to disrespect through the way that you serve. No, in fact, the mere fact that they are brothers is actually grounds, he says, that you serve all the better, that you serve all the more. The point being that being the servant of a fellow believer is not grounds for disrespect or laziness. Remember the context. We're in a church. We're in the city of Ephesus. One-third of the population here is likely consisting of slaves. So a large portion of this congregation consists of those who are slaves and those who own slaves. And there's probably a lot of relational tension here potentially some animosity. Again, you might have an elder who is a master, maybe serving alongside a fellow elder that is his servant or is a servant of another one. It's a bizarre, again, a bizarre situation when we try to imagine it with our own eyes, not really knowing and experiencing this kind of world. So imagine the relational tension and how a slave might be struggling to provide service or to use, use the fact that, hey, we're brothers saved by grace. Maybe there's a lighter load that I can take under service to you. And maybe just kind of assuming that lighter load for himself and showing disrespect by not working hard. Again, taking advantage of his status in Christ with his master to benefit himself. Paul says, no, being the servant of a fellow believer is grounds for greater respect and a higher degree of effort 
officer. And why? Again, he provides the answer. He says, those who are believing slaves must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Why? On the grounds that, since that, those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. Christian masters are their brothers in Christ, and in Christ they are beloved. So they should be viewed as brothers. They should be viewed properly as those who are beloved in Christ. And in light of that fact, they ought to be beloved as well by the servants themselves. The servants ought to see their service to these believing masters as a means by which they display brotherly love and care for them and respect and honor. We're told by Paul elsewhere to outdo one another in showing honor. And what better way to apply the instructions of Paul and God's word in loving and honoring one another? And a second thing, the benefit that the slave gives by good service to his believing master ultimately benefits himself. The benefit that the slave gives to the master ultimately comes back onto him. So I'm not arguing for now like a selfish motive, but there is just a logical connection that these slaves who seem to be using their freedom seem to be taking advantage of their status in Christ. They, they seem to be just missing the point. And Paul writing to Timothy is, you need to address this. Slaves, called in Christ, you have an opportunity to uphold the gospel to your unbelieving masters. Slaves who are called in Christ, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to love your brother. And to bear witness to an unbelieving world looking in at this dynamic between a believing slave and of a believing master and see this mutual love and respect, even in the context of slavery. There's a huge opportunity. And again, the wider principle that we see being drawn out here in this text is that honoring those in positional authority over us honors God, and it serves as a means to gospel witness and brotherly love. So by way of application, in light of all of this, we ought to be those who consider life in a way that accords with sound doctrine. The way that we live our lives ought to reflect the name that we bear and ought to reflect the doctrine that we claim to profess and hold to. Again, going back to Titus chapter 2, he says this, starting in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he goes on and he lists, here's what accords with sound doctrine. And he lists a number of different relationships, just like Paul has laid out for Timothy. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves of much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, 
and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There it is again. That same phrase that we saw in 1 Timothy 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And again, that verse I read earlier, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything so that they may adorn the doctrine of God. The way you give honor, the way that you show respect and display reverence shares a close relationship to the soundness and health of your doctrine. In other words, healthy doctrine should produce respect and reverence in us. No matter the relational context you find yourself in, it should produce honor, respect, reverence. And this has wide application to the many human relationships and social dynamics both inside and outside the church. And especially one that, again, seems really immediate in relationship to what we've been talking about with the relationship between slaves and masters is the relationship between you and your employer or you and your employees. Brothers and sisters, if you are an employee of someone else, whether unbeliever or believer, let us meet, be those who adorn the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of the face. Let us live life in a way that accords with sound doctrine. May we see our relationships with our employers as a means of magnifying the gospel and bearing witness, honoring the name of Christ by the way that we serve well, the way that we show respect and reverence to them. Again, regardless of the fact that they're unbelievers. And if we have believing employers, may we serve them all the better. Why? Because they're brothers in Christ, because they're beloved. Again, we have an opportunity to reflect the love of God and Christ to us, to our believing employers, showing respect to them. The last application, really quickly, consider the service and humiliation of Christ. Christ's humble service sets for us an example of true servitude and love for others, but more than that, Christ's humble service is the means of accomplishing our redemption and providing us with gospel hope. This is your ultimate freedom from slavery, and it is the means to an eternal inheritance that you share with all the saints, with all that are in Christ. May we look to Christ. May we look to Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he set it aside and he took the form of a servant. And becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. In light of this, God has highly exalted him. Brothers and sisters, this is our redemption. This is our freedom. This is our hope and our inheritance. May we look to him. 
May we look to him when we are struggling to show reverence, when we are struggling to be humble before those that are deserving of our respect and our reverence. And may Christ be glorified in the way that we bear his name in all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the grace, love, and mercy that you've shown us in your son. God, I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to our minds and hearts, apply it where application is needed by your grace and your perfect wisdom. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.